can't take it anymore when we have to go home to our communities and they're fucking dead. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 1, War Correspondence. Jeanette Pettipaw-Taylor, Canada's Minister of Health, is making a speech. The discussions yesterday and today have made the symposium very worthwhile for all of us. Although it's painful to have these conversations, I want you to... Vague platitudes about the overdose crisis, but no real commitments. Our discussions over the past few days have shown that there are diverse views on many aspects of the opioid crisis. There was a time, however, when these... Then a young drug user activist takes the stage. Slipping behind the minister, she unfurls a sign. They talk, we die, it says. The activist is Olympia Tripus from Toronto. She holds the sign above her head, silently, defiantly. Unfazed and like a robot, the minister keeps talking. And we keep dying. I encourage you to continue to raise your voices, and I promise that I'll continue to listen. Once again, thank you so much for participating in this I'm in Toronto at a conference on the overdose crisis organized by the government. In the last couple of years, around 10,000 people have died of overdose in Canada. In the U.S., there was something like 70,000 deaths in 2017 alone. The vast majority were killed by fentanyl, a strong synthetic opioid, now found in heroin, oxy, coke, speed, or whatever. The scale of this is unprecedented. In fact, it's affecting average life expectancies across North America. This has been building for years, and it's not stopping. Welcome back, everyone. We're about to get I'm sitting with a little knot of drug user activists from across the country. We are outnumbered here. The room is bursting with a couple of hundred mayors and cabinet ministers, researchers and bureaucrats, prison wardens and cops. This is their turf. I'm here for a lot of reasons. I'm an activist, a trade unionist, and a radio producer. I've won awards for documentaries I've made, and I've covered the overdose crisis. But I never really put myself in the story. For decades, I've used heroin and then methadone, most days since I was a teenager. But there's a lot of prejudice out there. It's hard to get work if the people at the job interview know that you're a drug user. They think you'll pawn the laptops or whatever. I didn't keep it a secret. I just didn't advertise. I want to talk to you a little bit about the work that I have been tasked with doing with respect to the use supply. We know that it's a significant portion of the opioids that are... Hours pass. Sympathetic words and crocodile tears continue to flow from the podium. But from the floor, Zoe Dodd gets to her feet. Zoe is one of the activists who got overdose prevention sites going in Toronto, and she interrupts the panel. That don't allow them in the services that they need to be going to. That is why we need decriminalization. And I'm sorry you're not brave enough 
and that you actually agree with the conservative government who was here yesterday saying that we don't have the supports to follow a Portugal model. Are you kidding me? We actually have so many supports in this country that we could support people if you actually help them. But it feels really, really bleak right now. Well, you're hopeful. Well, the rest of us are watching our communities be decimated and we're supposed to sit here politely and take it. Well, I'm sorry we can't take it anymore when we have to go home to our communities and they're fucking dead. And we can't walk together if we're dead. Thank you for your comments, and I know that I'm also going to provide the offices of the mayors and the ministers. Is anyone else feeling this desperate sense of urgency? I try to count how many of my friends and colleagues have died from overdose. I get to around 50, and I just have to stop. The evidence and the bodies are piling up. Government remains unmoved. For them, there is no emergency. It's just spin. But for us, it's a war, and it needs to be covered like a war, by war correspondents. And that's us. I'm going to gather a bunch of activists that I work with, who I have survived the crisis with, and we're going to make radio. We're going to make a podcast. And on today's show, I'm going to introduce them to you. And I'm going to start talking about my own drug use. Fuck the consequences. I don't know if this is going to make any difference at all. But we've got to try. Hey, there's nothing like camel cigarettes. They're the best cigarettes in the world. I don't care what anybody says. They're so fucking expensive here in Canada, though. That's, I know. Uh, that's the hard part of it all. <laughs> smoke less, smoke better. Yeah, well, <laughs> I still smoke a lot, and I like smoking the better, but I can't afford to smoke camels. <laughs> I, I try to be a bit of an aristocratic smoker yeah, if I possibly yeah, can be. Well. Dean Wilson is one of the founders of the North American drug user movement. He helped to get Insight, North America's first safe injection site, going. That struggle took him to Parliament and to the Supreme Court of Canada. But that's why he's one of the first people I got a hold of about doing a podcast. He was at the conference with me. Now we're back in Vancouver and just leaving a meeting. It's funny, we're walking on Hastings Street now too, and you know, we're, the closer we're getting to Maine, um, it just uh, it's a beautiful day here in Vancouver, a little chilly, but it's just a beautiful sunny day. And, and you just see everybody out and, uh, and busy and, and, and everybody here is, who you can see pretty well, uh, I would say 90% of them are, are people who are involved in the drug business or, or are on drugs or have some kind of issue. And uh, it's, uh, I love this community. We stick together and uh, that's also helped me come to this, this, this place that I'm at right now where I'm actually, uh, I'm happy. And, uh, you know, that, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. We're on the downtown east side, the heart of Canada's overdose crisis. And this is where the drug war started, where one of the world's first pieces of drug prohibition legislation was conceived. It's also the site of Canada's first big overdose crisis in the 1990s. And Dean and I survived it. 
See, there's, there's the real background to my hood. That's the reality of my hood, is that that's the ever-present reminder that you are always playing Russian roulette every time you use a drug down here nowadays, which is fucking pathetic when we know that we could have a safe drug supply. If it's Russian roulette, why do we do it? Many reasons. Avoiding dope sickness is a big one. I'd start to feel bad just a few hours after my last fix. Now, I've done some dodgy things to avoid that dope sickness, but it's not the big dramas. It's those little banalities that get to me. The incremental defeats, the daily insults to your dignity. Like this one time, I'd spent the rent. There's an eviction notice on the door of my apartment. My phone's a useless brick, and I'm dope sick. Cold chemical sweat is dripping down my back. I'm just trying not to puke on the sidewalk. Fuck it. At a pawn shop not far from here, I sell the boots off my feet. What I get for them barely makes a dent. There's no time to go home for sneakers. Wet November pavement seeping up through my socks was just the price of doing business that day. The part that I hate about withdrawal is that I have to be that person I've always hated all my life and why I use drugs to cope. And it's not the fact that I'm sitting there barfing and shitting my pants. It's the fact is that I'm every hour that I go without an opiate in my system, I'm going back to that guy who I hated for 55 years and self-medicated so I could cope with being Dean in this world. <coughs> and uh, some people say, you know, think that's kind of a funny thing to say about withdrawal, but that's what really bothers me about withdrawal is that I delve back into that place and that person that I hated. And it comes back to the very first thing I ever said after using heroin. The very first thing I said was, I turned to my brother and I said, I feel normal. Now that's kind of an odd thing for a 12 year old <laughs> to say the first time they ever used heroin. But it's the honest to goodness truth. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's the same thing. As soon when I used it when I first when I was a teenager, it's like, oh, I'm home. This is yeah. this must be what everybody else is doing all the time, yeah. not feeling uh, apart from themselves or somehow split or at war with yourself. You know, drugs can blot out, if just for a moment, the trauma of colonization, or a partner's violence, or the drudgery of work, or the terror of homelessness or the brutality of racism. Drugs can dull the pain of injuries we got on the job. And also, drugs just feel good. I'm at the Vancouver area network of drug users. Around here, most people just call it Vandu. This is no social service provider. It's an activist space run by drug users. There's a safe injection room in the back and a little office. The walls are covered in pictures of demonstrations and the faces of members who've died. An assortment of mismatched chairs make a terrible scraping as they're moved into position for a meeting. 
I'm here to meet up with a bunch of drug user activists, including Dean. I've asked him to be the podcast's editorial board. The plan today is to figure out what stories we're going to tell. So are we going to take the risk of uh, having coffee and gear in the same location? I mean, maybe we could, yeah, what do you think? Going around the table, we have experience with heroin, crack, and speed, homelessness, and jail. Of the 60s scoop, where Indigenous kids got taken away from their parents, which is still happening. But we also have experience testifying before parliamentary committees or at the Supreme Court. We've lobbied prime ministers and international dignitaries. I can't imagine making a podcast with a better group of people. But before we've made even one minute of radio, we almost lost an editorial board member. Drug prohibition can lead to some pretty bad health outcomes. And that landed Sharice Kiwatin in hospital, in a serious state. Sharice's Cree... And she's been an activist at Vandu for years. Therese, can I just say, uh, we jumped into the agenda, but how glad I am that you're here today. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. yeah, we're happy. You're mm-hmm. much better than last time I see you. Yeah, I know. Flora showed me the pictures. I said, you guys were taking pictures of me? I said, you guys are, I said, you guys are harsh, man. I said, only you and Simone would do that. <laughs> I was in a big bubble, and then, and then they did one with me with a tube down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Good response. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just the whole, this whole lifestyle is just not what I signed up for. <laughs> I guess that's about all I have to do. For now. Go ahead. Laura? No, I pass. That's Laura Shaver. She's been a leader at the British Columbia Association of People on Methadone for a decade. We can laugh about it now, but Therese was almost dead and it had nothing. To, it was nobody's fault but her doctor. She sees a doctor once a week and they let her die in front of us. And then once we have her in the hospital and she's dying, her, they still don't give her the treatment they're supposed to, leaving her sitting there for three hours uncomfortable. It was wrong. It was wrong. And this shows the treatment is wrong. It's 2018 and people are still treated like fucking animals. You know, they want to give her bias treatment or people bias treatment because they use (coughs) drugs. Well, if they're using drugs, that means you're not doing something right. I admitted to them too. I told them straight out. I I feel like I want to just get up and if I could walk, I would leave right now. I said, but I can't. She says, well, you can go if you want, but you got to walk out of here by yourself. I said, I, I, if I wanted to go, I would crawl. Believe me. <laughs> like, it's wrong. I think I'm, I want to, I want to make, I'm, I'm, I'm making complaints. I'm, this is my job. This is what I do. And the person that's closest to me is the one that needs it the most. Our system is so broken. So broken, and it just feels like it's so far, so far away from being fixed.
One of the most dangerous things about drugs is the fact that they're illegal. Most of the time, we don't know what's in the drugs that we buy. Maybe we just scored dope cut with some kind of illicit fentanyl or pig dewormer, rat poison, household cleaners, cement, or some other shit like that. Access to a safe supply would save so many lives. And we're not the only ones saying this. Researchers are saying it too. And that's why this podcast is going to have its own science advisor. Can you, uh, can you introduce yourself for us, Ryan? Sure. So I'm Ryan McNeil. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia and a research scientist at the BC Center on Substance Use. How did you get interested in doing research on drugs and people who use drugs? Yeah. So most of what I've been involved with until really my early 20s was reproductive health research. I worked at Planned Parenthood. I did some work around postpartum depression, um, really because I was in New Brunswick and that's what existed for opportunities to be engaged in research. So I, I finished my, my master's and I moved to Ottawa and, you know, partly I was looking for a job. And there was a position that was open um, at a research institute there for a study looking at the palliative care needs of people who are homeless. And, you know, things kind of fell in place. And I worked for a few years as the coordinator of that study. And so the reality well, is... Can you just tell us what, what's palliative care? Yeah. So this is this is care for people who are dying. Um, so, so you're doing research on what kind of care is available for people who are homeless at the end of their life. Yeah, so it was a bit of a mixture of looking at what was happening in cities across Canada, but then also looking at some of the services that are developed in Ottawa. And, you know, what kept coming out of that work is people who use drugs, who were affected by homelessness and housing vulnerability, were dying alone. They were unable to access services. People just wouldn't provide care to people who use drugs at the end of life. They would be turned down from hospices, assisted living facilities, and everything else. Because so they'd have rules, like you can't be on drugs and stay here. Yeah, you, you can't be using. Or, I mean, what would more happen is people would be identified as a quote-unquote problematic person or as a person who has behavioral challenges. So they'd be denied care on that basis. So, you know, working so for so long, spending so much time with people who use drugs who are actively dying made me want to take a huge step back in my work and really kind of dive into all of the things that we can do to prevent that from happening. You and me have been in the same room with a lot of government officials now. And uh, so people like myself from the BC Association of People on Methadone and you, and we kind of do this dog and pony show where we present a little bit of the lived experience. And then we go around the table and Ryan, you explain your the research and the findings that you've you know, you've generated. What's that like to, to have that sort of, um, you know, that dog and pony show, but also be the, the, the sort of voice of validation to the officials? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's really unfortunate that that's what we have to do. You know, I, I feel quite honored, frankly, that I get to come to meetings like that as a voice bringing research to the table. Um, you know, sometimes I maybe be get. I'm given a bit more space than I should be. Um, but at the same time, I think it really points to how researchers can work hand in hand with communities to try to bring about changes to improve equity. I'm not saying that all we need is for the right official to hear the right evidence and then boom, problem solved. It takes more. It takes organizing, it takes demonstrations and civil disobedience. If we don't do that, we get nothing. Safe injection and overdose prevention sites first started outside the law, 
by activists. Only later did they get official approval. Same thing with clean needle distribution back in the day. But these services are fragmented, only available in fits and starts, sometimes in tents, and they don't exist in most places. We bring this uh, sort of user experience and uh, scientific research together. We, we present it to policymakers, but still we're not really moving the needle, if you'll forgive the pun. Do you have any thoughts on why? Um, I mean, that's a tough question because I think it's really complex and touches at the heart of what so many people are fighting fighting for and, and against right now. I mean, we're seeing policy in action right now that's inexcusable when we know that there's things that we can we can do and pursue that would make this better um you know we have an overdose response being undermined by the fact that people are still criminalized we have huge gaps in access to treatment more than 80 percent of people who are dying in canada right now of overdose are dying from fentanyl adulterated drugs and you know it's going to take political courage and it's going to take people fighting tooth and nail, but we need to actually address the issue of a safer supply. And, you know, if you're a politician who's worried about alienating a suburban voter or, you know, frankly, making a hard decision on this, then, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, that's creating a situation where we have inaction. So what's at stake for you in this work? <sighs> I mean, I'm losing friends. I'm losing people I care about. Um lives are at stake. I'm so goddamn tired of having to go to memorials, especially when nearly every single death can be prevented. And and how would you answer critics that would say, uh, you're biased, you're not objective in your research because you're too close to pe people like me and drug users and you're too moved by our deaths and our precarious lives? The research is absolutely unequivocal that what we're doing doesn't work. And one could be detached about it. One could be moved by it. One could feel the loss that's being felt right now. And it's not going to change what the evidence points to. You know, sometimes you wish you could be at a point where you're so removed so as to not feel the loss all the time. But the reality is this work hurts right now. Everybody who's involved with this work hurts right now. And this is happening against the backdrop of such profound loss that I frankly think the work strengthened by the fact that I feel it too. Um, at, at the end of our meetings, we like to, to um, do a moment of silence to remember those we've lost to the drug war and those that are still fighting. If you can bring up your hats, please. People in the hospitals, institutions. If there are any dedications right now, would be the time. So this moment of silence is for them and many that we might have missed. All my relations. All my relations. All my relations. So, uh... So now you've met the team, and this is our mission, our manifesto. Drug users are the experts. We've survived. 
We know policy better than the policymakers. We know law better than the lawmakers. And we know pharmaceuticals better than the pharmacists. We're going to punch up, not punch down. That means holding the powerful to account while building more solidarity among drug users. We're going to keep six. We're going to expose bad drug policy as the reason that we have bad drugs. We're going to show how colonization, poverty, class, sexuality, and gender can make the drug war so much worse for some of us. And we're going to show how criminalization, jails, and police just increase the harm. We're going to look at solutions, like how decriminalization and a safe drug supply could end the overdose crisis. We're going to cut against the stereotypes, showing drug users as experts and activists and organizers, not just the two-dimensional caricatures you see everywhere else. Because drug user activism is the only thing that makes change. We know that nobody is coming to save us. So we've got to save ourselves. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. The Crackdown editorial board is Laura Shaver, Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, and Sharice Kiwatton. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Crackdown is co-produced by Alexander Kim, Lisa Hale, Sam Finn, and Gordon Caddick. Ryan McNeil of the BC Centre on Substance Use is our science advisor. Music is written and performed by Sam Finn and myself with Dave Jens, Ben Appenheimer, and Jacob Dryden. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. We have an academic partnership with the qualitative and community-based research program of the BC Centre on Substance Use and the Department of Medicine at the University of BC. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we're doing, leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is at CrackdownPod.com. And you can email us at info at CrackdownPod.com. A new episode drops on the last Wednesday of every month. See you in late February. Listening to a sided media production. C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.